Welcome to Energy Radio Rewind. My name is Mark Charbonneau, the content specialist at CEM Engineering, and I have taken over this podcast for a very special episode. In this podcast, we go back in time to revisit some of our earlier episodes to highlight some of our fantastic guests and their adventures in the energy industry. If you enjoy these segments, please feel free to check out the full episodes on our website at cemeng.ca forward slash podcast. This is Energy Radio Rewind. Here we go. Our first segment comes from Energy Radio episode 17, titled A Diverse Portfolio that features David Tykrobe, a renewable and clean energy specialist. From gas to electricity and hydrogen technologies, Matt and Dave talk about a wide range of ways to consume energy and where we should focus our efforts going forward. Power to gas is uh, becoming more mainstream in different parts of the globe here in North America, still fairly new. Uh, but think of it as uh, sector coupling in one way. Um, uh, in Australia, they'd call it hydrogen hubs. Um, mm. In Europe, sector coupling would mean convergence of wires, pipelines, transportation space. And the core of it is a technology called water electrolyzers. So DC electricity, water into a device that basically will split that water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen. In many cases, we just vent the oxygen to the atmosphere, uh, but that hydrogen is now recovered. And if the supply of electricity is from clean or renewable supplies, you now have a clean or renewable supply of hydrogen. And the beauty is really in the flexibility of that once you have the hydrogen. Mm. You can direct that energy now to long-term storage by injecting in the natural gas grid. Mm. You can store it, bring it back to the electricity grid through existing gas-fired generators. You could use fuel cell stationary products to bring that back as electricity. Uh, but you can now start to target the transportation sector with more tools than just electric vehicles. Uh -huh. So a fuel cell electric vehicle would have a fuel cell, small battery, yes. but your supply is now hydrogen to create the energy needed for transport. And in heavy-duty trucking, in rail, we're seeing Alstom uh, in Germany bringing fuel cell commuter trains, uh, completely eliminating the need for overhead electric infrastructure for electrified rail. Hmm. I think when you start to look at what uh, I brought forward for Enbridge, you know, uh, they sent me out to find energy storage. That mm. was the real mantra, and that's becoming a bigger need for today's economy. Yeah, It's often said, if you like wind and solar, you're going to have to love storage. Right, right. To that, I add that if you love storage, you're going to have to look at pipelines. Mm. And that's the next phase. Uh, we brought uh, North America's largest... Uh, power to gas plant at two and a half megawatts to service the electric grid. Yes. It starts its life in what we call grid stabilization. Okay. Okay. As we bring more renewables, we get more variable supply. Yes. We have variable demand. Yes. You need to smooth that out in a second by second basis. Or if you don't, you end up with a problem like the 2003 blackout through much of the Eastern US and Central Canada. Hmm. And that grid stabilization is something the electrolyzers provide. Mm. You can add either more generation or take generation off, or you can add more load or take load off to provide the same stability. So do you, do you see it as a technology that plays in 
kind of these ancillary markets where they, there's, so, there's different services they can sell that's not maybe energy? It is very much uh, one player in the ancillary service market. And that would be what that plant that we brought into service in Markham, Ontario is today providing. Okay. Uh, that second by second frequency control really? and grid stabilization. Uh, Co-producing the hydrogen. My hope is the next phase will be moving to taking that hydrogen, inject it into the natural gas grid, and now we are affording consumers vast, cost-effective, existing seasonal energy storage. So let me unpack that for a minute. So you're saying that currently the, cur the pro project you did is only, the hydrogen is currently not a captured benefit? It's, 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 it, it's, it's current only commercial benefit is the service it's providing to the grid? So in, in the way that project will start um, under grid stabilization, it will store um, hydrogen for um, about eight megawatt hours worth. Okay, so there's on-site? There's um, on-site on -site storage. storage. Okay. And in addition to the electrolyzer providing that grid stabilization through variable load, there's also a fuel cell that is also providing okay. power back. Okay. Um, in essence, the early ancillary service contracts were forcing just about all energy storage technologies to behave like a battery. I see. There's nothing wrong with a battery, but let's be honest, you know, two, four, eight hour storage, that's, that's a lot. Yes. If you want to do a bit more, you do things like pumped hydro, compressed air energy storage, and even there, you're limited to hours or a couple days. Yes. Um, People do not understand the vastness of the gas storage network. Right. So, few stats. Yeah. Peak day for the electric grid here is about 24,000 megawatts. In equivalent terms, the peak day for the gas grid is over 80,000 megawatts. Wow. That's three wow. and a half times. Yeah. Um, and, and today we have the, well, on both electric and gas, but we have the infrastructure to support that, you know, it, underground, we have the, the infrastructure exists, for 80, 85,000 megawatts. Bought and paid for yeah, every yeah. winter. It keeps the homes, you know, uh, heated. It keeps the factories running. Yeah. Now, why would we not use what we already have before we build something new? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And that's where the power to gas becomes that sector coupling or that hub between wires and pipelines. I refer to it as a new intertie. We think nothing about building a connection to have electricity shared between Ontario and New York State, um, province to province, state to state. Yeah. Why would you not have a new inner tie between your wholesale electric grid and your wholesale gas grid? Hmm. And now you have all that storage available to you. And I, I need to touch on the costs of this. Yeah, yeah. I'm... Uh, I'm an advocate for battery storage. I'm looking at integrating that with my solar system on my house. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have solar thermal. I have solar PV. Mm. I have an EV in the driveway. But I'll never get rid of that natural gas connection because I know it's connected to the biggest, gaseous battery in the province. And from a cost perspective for heating energy, you can get a kilowatt hour of storage for one third of a penny. Hmm. So I'm just gonna leave that with you for Thank a moment. You. Yes. You can figure out how to cut that penny into thirds. It's an American penny as well, so that's, that's good. Okay. Now take the battery storage that I will probably invest in for my house. Yes. 
Uh, let's say it's a 10 kilowatt hour battery. Let's say it has 10,000 cycles over its life, 100,000 cycles. Yes. Um, I'm probably going to have to invest seven to $10,000. Wow. I can get that same storage out of the gas grid for $350. Hmm. Anything that would be, uh, let's say the power to gas with renewable electricity is our green hydrogen. Yes. Uh, conventional hydrogen from natural gas sometimes gets called gray hydrogen. Okay. 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 Uh, and then when we use that production method of natural gas in a steam methane reformer to hydrogen yes. and then fit that with carbon capture yes. and storage, yes. that would become the blue hydrogen. Okay. Or uh, as I had mentioned, the other way to get blue hydrogen, again, you've got cost effective, conventional natural gas is the feedstock. You put it into some of these thermal cracking devices yes. and you get two products. You get zero carbon hydrogen, high value, used in a number of areas. You get the carbon solids as carbon black, graphite, or other products that then go into high value manufactured goods. Yeah. And you're seeing awards out of places like Germany for some of the innovation, research, and development that's being done on things like thermal cracking. Okay. Wow. Solar fuels. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in some cases, they're using high intensity solar collectors. Yes to concentrate enough heat energy yes. that it'll crack conventional natural gas with Whoa. no other inputs. Whoa. Our next segment is a deep dive into the hydrogen technology offered by 2G Energy Inc. Dan Jones, CEO, and Frank Grew, Head of Development, Head of Structure and Strategy at 2 Energy Inc. fill us in on their innovations such as their current hydrogen CHP solutions and where they are headed in the hydrogen space as a company. Let's start to get into the main topic today, which is is hydrogen and, and, and maybe a little bit broader, um, you know, different fuels. Uh, as I think I said to you guys um, before, like hydrogen and, um, you know, the, these different fuels is something for us uh, at CEM and more importantly, you know, for the clients that we serve is, is becoming really an exciting topic. And so that's why today is so important is to understand okay, you know, from a high level, it sounds good, but you know, what, what's being done and what can be done uh, to burn different types of fuels. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll keep it at that high level for a minute. Um, you know, we, we see a lot of activity um, in, in the combustion engine or even gas turbine space with respect to different fuels. Um, and, you know, on one hand, there's an RNG space, uh, but in, in, from the combustion perspective, that's, you know, the same as burning natural gas. But where, where do you guys see the, um, the hydrogen market? Like, what's your view of the broader uh, market? What are the drivers? You know, what's some of the uptake? Um, and maybe, maybe each of you can give a different perspective because we have a European and a North American perspective. But, um, you know, maybe, maybe Frank, you want to go first and kind of give us your view of the hydrogen market and what's driving it and, and where it's going and what's exciting about it for you guys. Yes, I can say something about the German perspective on that or the European maybe. So um, basically the supply of electricity is responsible for around 40% of the um, energy related CO2 emissions. So this sector offers a high potential for emission reduction and this uh, reduction can get realized um, just only by the use of renewable 
energy sources such as wind and solar. And um, the electricity mix in Germany, for example, is from around 40% uh, renewables, and it's um, strongly increasing. Um, but at the same time, these sources are inherently fluctuating and not necessarily available when there is an energy demand. So hydrogen is a perfect long-term storage technology for overcapacities of renewable energy. It can become a kind of seasonal storage, different to a battery where we think, okay, it's good to bring the solar power from the day to the night. Uh, hydrogen is able to bring the solar power, for example, from summer into the winter months by storing it in large gas grids and use it on demand in, in combined heat and power units with efficiencies of yeah, 80% and higher. And as long as the energy sector is driven more and more by this renewables, um, hydrogen will become a high relevance as this kind of storage technology in, um, in Germany. Um, so green hydrogen yeah, is also uh, get used more and more for the decarbonization in other industries. So the capacities overall will increase and it will be available also for carbon-free combined heat and power generation more and more in general. So we think that, yeah, besides of, of course, methane from biogas, it's the technology what is closest to a practical use in cereal. Uh, other than renewable gases, um, it's by far um, best developed uh, technology. So yes, we think that hydrogen will play a major role and uh, government in Germany decides to spend a lot of um, money now on Wednesday um, to push this industry to um, to um, yeah increase um, the, the market volume in hydrogen here for decarbonization not just the energy sector but also the, the um, whole industry. So what I'm hearing is that there's this desire to decarbonize electricity I, th I think there's a you know the the wind and the solar and the the what i call the sexy technologies uh, the, yeah. the easy to understand technologies obviously play a big role in that but the practicality is that it's not always sunny and not always windy and so what you guys are seeing in that drive towards that you know decarbonizing the electricity grid is is the need for storage and hydrogen a key part of that? Um, what, in terms of that, where do you see the storage? Um, is it is it the existing natural gas infrastructure, or what? what mm. How does that storage piece fit into the, the the broader hydrogen economy? So what we see is there will come up um, different um, possibilities. So there is the natural gas grid where you can store or where you put five to 10 volume percentage of hydrogen in to, to mix it. We see grids what can uh, accept around 30% hydrogen and we see the pure hydrogen grid. So we see a, a, a wide mixture of, of, of possibilities. We have a natural our natural gas grid here in Germany have a storage capacity of around 360 terawatt hours, what is around one-fourth of what can uh, deliver one-fourth of the electrical, electrical demand for of a year. Mm. So it's a really large storage capacity and it will be good to for a mix, for, for, uh, to, to put hydrogen into this grid. But 
They are developing currently um, also very interesting projects with pipes where they have 100% hydrogen. And um, from the north, where we have a lot of wind turbines, I uh, want to deliver this energy uh, stored as hydrogen in the more industrial uh, sections in Germany. So what's in the middle or in the south. So uh, there will be differences. And this is why we um, have um, different settings also for the engines. We don't see the gas quality or the gas um, mix we see that we need to adapt the engine to the specific gas what we get. And in the case of hydrogen, it can be a mixture in the natural gas grid of uh, 5 to 10. Then we don't need to change a lot. It can be uh, 30 to 40 percent. Uh, we need to make some uh, changes on the engine. Or it can be the pure hydrogen where we use also then our pure hydrogen engine. So the mixture will be there. This is um, what we're saying. Well, thank you for that perspective. And, and uh, Dan, to build on to that, I mean, do you have a sense of the North American market? Is it is it going the same way? Or, I mean, where are we relative to that progression? Or are there different drivers? Or what's your sense on this hydrogen economy from a North American perspective? I, I have to tell you that we're developing that sense right now. We're, we're with the product being relatively new, um, our team is, uh, for the 60 hertz market, our team is uh, engaging and, and trying to learn what the verticals and, and, and the opportunities are. We see a definition of uh, gray, blue, and green hydrogen, a green being a renewable-based hydrogen conversion, uh, blue being uh, a non-renewable conversion, and gray being an industrial process, an off-gas, if you will. Mm. So looking at those three bubbles, if you will, or opportunities, uh, as Frank mentioned, having um, the the capability to to use the fuel from those processes can be different, and we have to design specifically around that. Another component is that we have the fuel blending capability. So if it's a hundred percent hydrogen engine, uh, we can blend in another fuel into that that system to allow it to um, use what's available to create the energy when and where it's needed. Huh. And do we see um, do we see more uptake where you know hydrogen is produced at this you know and it's consumed at the same location as pure hydrogen, or do we see more uptake in this blending or or using the hydrogen that's in the natural gas grid? Do we have a sense of you know where the biggest growth is going to be? Not yet. We're working to to, to establish that. Uh, there, there's many people uh, working these verticals uh, or different variables to to uh, to see what's going to stick and uh, it's pretty exciting to see how much activity is actually happening on the ground and uh, from our side we really see hydrogen as a climate neutral fuel so we want to be part of that uh, reduce reduction of carbon emissions on to our third segment Taken from podcast episode 60, Unparalleled Power Systems, it features Megan Roney, the business development manager, and Sharonjeet Singh, manager of Tormont. They cover a wide array of topics from a brief history of Tormont, the future of CHP, the use of hydrogen in their engines, solar, wind, and energy storage, and so much more. So Tormont is a, is a company that's listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, it has been in existence from the mid-60s. Uh, uh, two lines of business. Uh, one is the CAD dealership, 
uh, which originally started in 1993 as the dealership for Ontario. Uh, subsequently, uh, dealerships in uh, Manitoba and Newfoundland were acquired. And the most recent one was uh, the acquisition of the CAD dealership in Quebec and the Maritimes. So Tormont is the CAD dealer for Eastern Canada from Manitoba all the way to Newfoundland, from the 49th parallel all the way to North Pole. And geographically, uh, we would be the cat, largest CAD dealer in the world. Mm. Uh, total of uh, more than 3,600 employees, uh, 1,600 technicians, 4,242 branches, and 400 technicians that are dedicated to power systems business. The other part of Tormont's business is uh, Simcoe Refrigeration, which is Canadian ice making company. And their specialty is industrial refrigeration, commercial refrigeration, and also hockey rings. Uh, Simcoe has uh, made a lot of hockey rings in, in Canada and, and globally as well. Very for, interesting. For our U.S. listeners. Uh, well, if, if guests have not guessed, or uh, not guests, uh, rather listeners have not guessed what we were going to talk about here, it's hydrogen, the big topic of the day and uh, really of the year. Um, and so I'd love for one of you to share Toramont's fairly new, I think fairly new, it's what, maybe my, maybe a month old now in terms of the news release that you guys have, and you'll have to correct me here. I think you have either a engine or multiple engines that can run on 100% hydrogen, but again, would love for one of you to talk a little more about that. Yes, uh, that was the mostly anticipated news for a long time. We, we knew CAT was doing some designs and validating equipment, uh, but until all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed, uh, Caterpillar uh, didn't release any information. And subsequently, uh, last couple of weeks, uh, there has been some news release. So uh, basically three three items uh, that uh, came through. And the first one is that the, the current uh, natural gas gensets that are out in the field, uh, they can operate uh, with up to 5% hydrogen without any changes to the equipment. So that's great news. Uh, yeah. So the current owners can use hydrogen up to 5% uh, in the natural gas. The second point is that uh, if somebody wants to use between 5 and 25% hydrogen uh, in the natural gas, CAT's coming up with a kit that will be available to customers next year. And uh, this kit is basically to install some Viton seals so that hydrogen doesn't leak uh, and uh, improve that and also some... Uh, spark arresters within the system from a safety perspective. And this kit, be, kit can be installed within a day or so and tested. And uh, that would uh, allow the current units to function uh, with up to 25% hydrogen. And that's, uh, a good, uh, that's a good place to pause and remind our young listeners to pay attention in grade 11 chemistry if they haven't. <laughs> because the hydrogen molecule is a lot smaller than, uh, than uh, a natural gas uh, molecule. And so the, it, it has an ability to permeate um, where where natural gas doesn't, right? That's the that's the underlying absolutely, chemistry absolutely, there, right? Abs yeah. Absolutely. And plus, the calorific calorific value of hydrogen is much lower than that of natural gas. So, so the great news is that CAT has a unit uh, that can operate on hydrogen. It used to be a, a 3516H natural gas unit, which would run on two megawatts on natural gas uh, with 25% hydrogen. Its uh, power output is uh, limited to 1982 kilowatts, and with 100% hydrogen, uh, it's uh, down to 1,232 kilowatts. So uh, 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 there's a D rate on it, but still uh, we have units that are available 
that uh, can operate on 100% hydrogen. What dr- what drives the D rates, Ranjit? So D rates are uh, basically the calorific value of the unit uh, of the gas. So there is 100% hydrogen, and calorific value of hydrogen is much more lower uh, than that of natural gas. So that drives the D rate uh, on the on the equipment. The equipment still has capability to uh, produce uh, much more higher output on natural gas. I mean, the key thing here is the equipment is the block is so the natural gas engine block is the same as the engine uh, block for diesel engines, mm. and uh, the hydrogen gas block is exactly the same. It's the combustion system that's changed. So we have uh, air in cylinder start for this unit. So gas pressures are much more higher with hydrogen, and uh, uh, the turbochargers will be much more bigger, and uh, and because of the more air that's required. Uh, apart from the the combustion related system, all the other systems are very much the same as that for uh, for the current natural gas units that we have. Hmm. So it's it's building actually. You can see the transition that has occurred from you know a diesel engine to a natural gas engine. The same platform is now used for the hydrogen. Interesting. Now, now, Sir and Jeter, Megan, that the the engine that can run on 100% hydrogen today that's just one engine or do you have multiple in your lineup that can run on 100% at this point right now it's the G3516 but cat also is testing other such as the G3512s so has already been tested and okay. the G3520s as well so they'll be they'll be coming up very shortly in fact we can get uh, 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 performance data for these units uh, depending on what the application is Okay, and then the modification kits that you were speaking about, that could be on any Caterpillar engine that's already existing in the field, or are you limited towards certain specific or certain or specific models? It will be the North American manufactured units. There'll be a separate kit for the Mannerheim built units. Okay, Mm. okay, cool. (laughs) But like what kind of confluence of events do you see in your mind's eye, knowing the space, uh, to to get a 100% hydrogen uh, project going? Ooh. Well, I can tell you if if we're talking about green hydrogen, um, it's going to be expensive. (laughs) 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 The numbers are not pretty. And so I think realistically, our first few projects will maybe be a collaboration with either Caterpillar um, and a customer. And there's got to be incentives there and, 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 and money because I don't think um, customers are going to be willing to take on that financial risk today. Um, you know, and, there, and there's there's challenges. I think everybody knows that I, most people realize that it's hydrogen is really going to be a big part of the story when it comes to our net zero initiatives globally. But, you know, right now supply and demand is a big issue. Uh, it's just not there. So if we're going to scale development, we really need to... We need financial support or incentives from the government. Um, we need investment in infrastructure because it's it's not there yet. And obviously policy, I think I'm going a, a little bit off the cuff, I guess, but policy's a big one, right? I think there's lots of bold statements being made by the government. The federal government is, you know, there's a really grand initiatives, but I don't think there's a lot of policy, at least long-term policy, around hydrogen to really give anybody a clear idea of, you know, what what's required. And so that's, that honestly doesn't help 
uh, make com customers feel comfortable moving forward with a project. They're very interested in it. It's just, yeah, I think until we really have a clear view of, of the hydrogen story in Canada and, and how it's what its role is going to be in the path net zero, um, you know, we're going to be we're going to be challenged. So I don't anticipate we're going to be supplying these engines probably on a made to order basis mm. uh, come next year. And it's really going to be about pilot projects and, and what incentives that we can look mm. at to support to support those type of projects. So does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it's it's unanswered to a question that doesn't have a clear answer. Right? I think you're you're 100 right. right. It's a it's you know we're 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 drawing the map as we move forward into uncharted territory together. Yeah. The the key here is that the technology is here that can use hydrogen to produce electricity. It's the uh, infrastructure that produces the hydrogen is not mm -hmm. there. So, uh, you know, like Megan said, policies and uh, you know. Um, you know, equipment uh, such as electrolyzers using off-peak power to produce electricity. I mean, our grid is pretty much clean as it is using uh, that produces electricity from nuclear and uh, biogas and landfill gas and so on, solar and wind. And so if, uh, you know, there were policies that were available that would provide incentives for producers to use the energy that's available at night, to produce hydrogen, uh, that would be very attractive and mm. that could go into the infrastructure. Uh, I mean, there are countries already in Europe uh, that have pockets uh, where there is more than 10% hydrogen in the line. And so they are ahead of the game compared to us. If you were to take a guess, guys, where do you think you're, the first Caterpillar 100% hydrogen engine will land, like from a, from a provincial standpoint across Canada? On a CEM project. <laughs> <laughs> I Yeah, it's a good question. I mean... Uh, if I had to guess, I would say Ontario. But Sorry, you, you, you would or you wouldn't say Ontario? I would say Ontario, although there's lots of opportunity across the rest of our territory. It's, you know, it's just the nature of things is that a lot of the guys across our territory in other provinces, um, you know, aren't necessarily as focused on the hydrogen side of the business as maybe Sharon Jett and I are, and we are mm. located in Ontario. And naturally we have... Um, an easier path with customers because we meet with them and we, we well, not so much in COVID, but we we usually see them um, in person and, and the conversations are just easier to have. So if if I had to guess a pilot would be close to home, close to our, our Brampton head office, but that's, it's really up in the air, at least it's a good question. I'm not really sure. <laughs> we don't know yet. The fourth segment is taken from episode 59, The Boiling Point. It features Kimberly Garcia, the HRSG and Energy Recovery Products Manager at Cleaver Brooks. They cover a whole host of topics including HRSG, heat recovery steam generators, waste heat, boilers, CHP, and hydrogen. Most of everything that we're seeing is, is natural gas, renewable gas, biogas, um, and you know occasionally a number two backup mm. you know that that's kind of but if we want to go into the hydrogen world um you know hydrogen isn't a new thing for cleaver brooks we've been burning hydrogen for years mm. um and and i think that you know when you talk to the any of the other manufacturers in the industry um hydrogen is not new 
you know, even the gas turbine guys, um, you know, hydrogen is not new there. And it was funny because I was, I was, um, studying for this and, and I went back and listened to Jonathan Coleman and, and Rob Thornton and, you know, everybody says, even at IDEA, this is a really good marketing, <laughs> marketing tool. Um, I think it's great. I think it's going to be awesome once we can get the infrastructure in place. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done. And, and my personal opinion is that we really need to, at least here in the U.S., we really need to focus on the electrical infrastructure um, before we start, you know, and, and maybe it's in parallel, but um, I really think that needs to be addressed sooner than later. Um, mm. You know, there's, there's just so much that needs to be um, upgraded. And, you know, before we start really getting down the path of electrification of everything. You know, you talked about electric boilers. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the H word hydrogen. There's renewable fuels like biogas. What is Cleaver Brooks seeing? Are you seeing more discussion happening around electric boilers? Are you seeing more discussion happening around hydrogen and biogas? Like what are you guys seeing from a fuel or power perspective, I guess? We're seeing all of it. Um, a lot of inquiries, you know, um, Things aren't necessarily, you know, moving forward on those type of projects, but a lot of, a lot of engineering firms um, asking the questions, which is, which is awesome. Um, we've been doing really well on the electric boiler side. Um, I have mixed emotions about that. I'm super happy that obviously Cliverbrooks is successful in that market, um, but I also am concerned um, that people are going to think that the electric boiler is going to be their savior for carbon mm -hmm. emissions. And that isn't necessarily the case, especially if you're putting in an electric boiler where your electricity is coming from a coal fired um, power plant. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I also caution that, you know, just coming from the world of, um, steam turbine generator sets and seeing some of the hurdles that people have on the electrical distribution side, you know, just putting in a, a steam turbine generator set, um, putting in a 50 megawatt electric boiler is not as easy as some people think. Um, there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, let's go. We're jumping around here, which is good. Let, let's go back to the H word. Um, mm -hmm. are, there, are there certain things? Because I want I want to ultimately get to waste heat boilers and, and HRSGs, um, and then who knows where it will end. But on the on the hydrogen side, are there are there particular kind of considerations from a combustion perspective that uh, that that you know come into play as we start to either blend hydrogen or burn pure hydrogen? Yeah, I think emissions. Um, you know, obviously that's the, the, the buzzword. Um, but you know, if we could, I think blending is going to be the best way to start. Um, but as far as, you know, there are tons of things that need to be taken into consideration when you're burning hydrogen. Um, there's a lengthy list of them that I don't know off the top of my head, but, um, the burner group definitely has, has, um, 
gone down that path. But, you know, burns, I think it burns hotter, right? Like it burns different. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does burn hotter, um, which, you know, increases all sorts of other bad things that can happen. Um, but, you know, most of the hydrogen firing that we've seen would be on, I guess we would call it the gray hydrogen scale. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many different colors. I can't keep track with which one is which, but, um, you know, byproducts. So we're not necessarily, uh, seeing at least new boilers going into, you know, because somebody just put in a hydrogen producing plant. These are, um, these are projects that, you know, customers happen to have a byproduct of hydrogen for whatever, mm-hmm. you know, um, manufacturing process, chemical fertilizer, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have this, let's call it free hydrogen, which I'm sure it's not going to be, there's going to be a price on it at some point, but, um, you know, those are the projects where, like I said, we've been doing it for a while because it's accessible. The customer has it, they're going to use it. Um, so yeah, the, that's, I think, there's a site, I think there's a site um, across the river uh, from from where I am right now in Buffalo that they produce an off gas that's hydrogen and they, uh, they they burn it in one of your boilers. Uh, I remember hearing about it from uh, one of your your reps, Mr. Brad Finlayson, who has since uh, yes. moved Retired. into reti- well earned retirement. But uh, yes. um, yeah, no, it's it's that's a great hydrogen play as well. Our final segment features all things hydrogen. Episode 30, Hydrogen, a Future in Energy. Rob Harvey, the Director of Energy Infrastructure at Hydrogenics, a Cummings Inc. company, talks about the design, manufacturing, building, and installing of industrial and commercial hydrogen generation, hydrogen fuel cells, and megawatt scale energy storage solutions. Hydrogenics was formed in 1996 by Pierre Rivard and Joe Carnelli, and Joe is still with us as uh, Chief Technology Officer. Um, I've learned that the first product that they got into was a fuel cell tester. Mm. At that time, in the late 90s, companies like General Motors and Toyota were getting into into fuel cells. I mean, it's taken a long time to get to where we are today, but the initial product development by the automotive companies was back in the late 90s. And Hydrogenics identified a product need for a fuel cell tester because they were, all these companies were developing fuel cells and providing services to monitor the performance um, of their tests and, and provide that. And what happened was we learned so much from, these, uh, from the services to the auto manufacturers that we decided to get into the fuel cell space ourselves. So, uh, um, and we immediately lost our, our fuel cell test customers, <laughs> but it was, it's interesting that um, that, that, that hydrogenics developed that way. And, and indeed the insights that they learned developed a, a low pressure um, you know, fuel cell stack that was uh, that no one, had, no one had ever done. And in terms of the, uh, a number of the features, integrated balance of stack, the performance of it um, is, uh, is still a world leading uh, product today. Hmm. And, uh, uh, and it's interesting that the, the, the aspect of, um, well, I guess pre-COVID, when we had uh, many visitors and coming to our plant to see the operations and so forth, I always make a point of mentioning when we look at the test stands, and this is for equipment that's tested before it's uh, being shipped, 
And we also have long-term test stands. So the, the testing portion is still part of our DNA. So we do long-term tests on membranes um, uh, for uh, degradation and uh, a large part of our R&D is, is tied with the, uh, the testing. Our core markets are, are really twofold. We, we're in the, the PEM fuel cell power module business for heavy duty mobility, that's buses, trucks, and commuter trains, and electrolysis for hydrogen production. And there's two sub-markets there. One is a traditional industrial um, hydrogen production market. And this is a very mature business and we've been in it uh, uh, a long time for customers in places in the world where they cannot be readily served by an air liquide or air products to deliver hydrogen to the door. So it's a sort of a make or buy decision. And if you've got a, a float glass plant or electronics plant and you need hydrogen, it's cheaper for you to buy a turnkey electrolyzer solution and, and, and set it up in your manufacturing plant and, and produce hydrogen. The second electrolysis market is uh, what we'll be talking about more is the you know, power to gas and the large scale renewable hydrogen for meeting demand of uh, fueling fuel cell vehicles and um, uh, blending with natural gas. Okay. When I think of um, you know some uh, some examples in this, uh, just to give you your audience some color on this, we we work with the uh, the OEMs and uh, integrators on the on the fuel cell side, and uh, we developed the fuel cell concepts for Alstom's Karate Island, and uh, that's the world's first zero emission uh, fuel cell electric train. It's a really exciting project because, um, and it's been in service since September of 2018 in Germany. And the reason it's exciting is for a passenger on that train that's been in service, there's no difference between, because the the Karate Island is based on the, the Lint train. And if uh, if you, uh, if you, if you're in Ottawa and you've taken the, the OC Transpo, you would have seen the Lint, the diesel version of, of the Lint. But in terms of the seating capacity, the top speed of 140 kilometers an hour, um, the range, the everything, everything is the same. And that's really the 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 value, the core value proposition of a fuel cell electric vehicle, is that you get a zero emission solution that has all the attributes and performance attributes for a customer or for an operator that you expect with uh, with diesel. Mm. And um, and that's been a very exciting project. Um, We've so, um, just to dwell on that fuel cell piece. So, so your your target market is predominantly uh, transportation as opposed to stationary uh, applications. That's correct. We we do we have done some uh, some work in projects and uh, with uh, backup stationary power. Oh yeah. Um, and and one uh, pilot project with um, baseload uh, power plant. Hmm. Um, but the, the 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 characteristics of uh, the PEM fuel cell are ideally suited um, to uh, to a mobility application because it can quickly ramp um, up and down with the cycle times. Some of the things, some of the characteristics of our fuel cells, for example, that we can um, they can be frozen, right? So it's uh, self-draining; you won't damage the stack. And for Canadian and northern climates, that's um, uh, that's important. So we've seen a lot more growth on the mobility side than the stationary side and the the uh, mobility side is it a gaseous fuel or is it a liquid fuel or what? it's a gaseous fuel uh, today it's uh, it's gaseous fuel okay. yeah hmm. so it's it's a compressed natural gas that drives that that train that you're talking about in germany no it's hydrogen 
so you're you're filling the train up. It's a fuel cell train, so you're you're filling the train up with um, with compressed uh, compressed hydrogen, and then the fuel cell is uh, converting the hydrogen into um, into electricity with a, a electrochemical process. Gotcha. Okay, and that and that's the that's the PEM process that you. What, what does that stand for? The PEM. Uh, proton exchange membrane. Okay, cool, awesome. So, is there a, is there a play where you guys stack your technologies? Like, there's a fuel cell, but before that, there's a hydrolysis piece. Like, do you see that as part of your value chain? Maybe not now, but maybe in the future. It's interesting you ask the question, Matt. There's there's a lot of people that um, when they they discover hydrogen, they get very excited about it because they say, oh, we got the pieces. If we have a renewable power already then we can use electrolysis to produce hydrogen and then we can store it and then we can bring it back as a fuel cell and there are other other technologies that that do a better job frankly than um, sort of the end-to-end power to power um, so despite the the initial interest when you start looking at the economics the real strength of um, electrolysis in the power to gas application is taking surplus clean hydro and renewable energy when we don't need it in nuclear in Ontario and transforming it into a fuel that can be used for vehicles or for, for heating at a later time. So the, the, the proposition for, 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 um, for power to gas is really being that, um, that interface between, between energy silos. And that's really where it's, where it's compelling. The same is true when you look at, you know, what's the value proposition for fuel cell vehicles? It's zero emission vehicle that has all the performance characteristics of a conventional vehicle. Mm -hmm. And uh, trying to marry the two together, um, you uh, you still have benefits, but they're not as compelling as electrolysis or fuel cell vehicles on their own. Hmm. Interesting. I love that phrase that you used, that you are the interface between energy silos. I think a lot of times, you know, we've seen that, um, you know, in that we talked about the biogas space, right? There's all these silos, there's energy, there's environment, there's agriculture, or even within energy, there's transportation, there's there's stationary, and, and you guys can be a bridge between that. I just, I love that image of being able to because as our markets get more dynamic, we're going to have to figure that out. We're going to have to figure out how to bridge, you know, an, an electrification. And there's all these different aspects that, you know, the more we can bring those dynamic elements together, uh, the better our infrastructure is going to be, right? Absolutely. And and it'll, it will improve the efficiency of both. I mean, right. when you look at the um, what's the strength of the gas system is very large scale energy storage. Um, and and having the ability to tap um, for you know winter heating loads, um, significant uh, I think it, significant uh, amounts of power and a very you know on on demand. Um, the the electricity sector that has uh, probably the biggest potential for renewable energy of any of any sector. We talked about biomass; it's a great source, but you we can do a lot more on uh, on the renewable side. On the for producing electricity than we can on um, biogas, for example. But if we can take the surpluses of that, if we can be be smart about using using that resource to produce um, liquid and gaseous fuel, um, then uh, renewable fuel, in terms of the overall energy system, we're we're being more efficient. And in terms of the hydrolysis piece, do you see the 
you, you, my sense is you can go multiple ways with the hydrogen that comes out the back end. Is the highest value proposition from both a fuel cost displaced and a uh, carbon intensity uh, displaced? Is transportation kind of the, the big value as opposed to um, you know injection into the existing pipeline, or are they are they comparable, or they have different places? Like how do you how do you see that playing out in the market? The biggest um, the biggest uh, opportunity for for decarbonization in terms of um, you take your kilogram of, of of hydrogen is in the heavy duty mobility space. Okay. And there's um, there's two reasons for that. One is the 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 carbon footprint of diesel is uh, is the highest. It's uh, next to coal is the the highest. But also that the um, that the fuel cell electric drivetrain is about twice as efficient as a diesel drivetrain. Mm. So not not only are you um, displacing a high carbon fuel, you're using you need less fuel. You're sort of getting a two x uh, multiple on on that displacement. Um, there's also uh, you know, decarbonization of natural gas, and there's there's lots of companies like Enbridge are working on a pilot uh, project for that right now, and uh, BC is uh, looking at regulations, I believe, for you know 15% renewable gas, and that would include hydrogen, but different uh, different sources. But natural gas is a much uh, a much cleaner fuel with a much uh, smaller um, you know carbon footprint. So displacing natural gas has a benefit as well, but it's not as high. Well, that concludes this episode of Energy Rewind. To hear these episodes in their entirety. Go to cemng.ca forward slash podcast, or you can find them anywhere podcasts can be heard. Please subscribe and share with your family and friends. We would greatly appreciate it. On behalf of Matt Lensink and Lisa Katz, we want to thank you for listening. And until next time, power your purpose.